My name is Eric. I'm a compulsive overeater. Uh, and uh, I hope I don't get too emotional. I've uh, got a rod of Kleenex to help myself. Today's a really magical day for me. Uh, 10, 12, 11 is my abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous. October 12, 2011. Uh, a very desperate day uh, in my life. And so hopefully I'll share a little bit of that, but I, I, I would like to maybe focus on what I've learned in the years of my recovery. Um, uh, I came into this program originally back in 1992. Got abstinence, got really fabulous recovery, was one of those people just like today, asked to speak, wonderful time and all of that. Uh, after about two or three years of abstinence, I began to drift in the program. And it's only a matter of time if you're drifting on a barge in this program before you begin to get sucked up by the current and you're back off and going. Um, I then came back and forth to this program several times. Um, I've often remarked that one of the most uh, scary parts of the big books I ever read is the beginning of chapter 5 when it says how it works. And it talks about sometimes there are people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And that is an issue I've struggled with my whole life. Uh, I can lie to myself incredibly easy. And once I've lied to myself, it's very easy to lie to you. I think we have almost, uh, you know, nowadays almost a daily exhibit of what that looks like. Once you can lie to yourself, you can begin to make up your entire reality and present it to others. And that's what led me into this program. Um, so I have eight years of abstinence. I'm maintaining about a 50-pound weight loss. Um, and uh, I was talking with someone on the phone uh, the other day and talking about how I feel as a compulsive overeater, we are now entering the high holidays. Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Uh, you know. And so uh, I'm part of the group that got abstinent before the high holidays. We know in January there will be a whole second group of people that will draw candles for having realized they needed to get out of the high holidays. Um, so I've been a compulsive overeater my whole life. On my dad's side, we have multiple generations of alcoholism. Even on my mom's side, there's a little alcoholism. When you're six and seven years old and in desperately need of something to get you out of this world, food is very often the substance that we can find. And I discovered it at a very young age. Um, <clears throat> as a latchkey child, my brother was very sociable and always had friends. I've always been an introvert. And so uh, I discovered early on that I could have about two hours alone in the house from 3.30 till 5 at least. Uh, I was probably the only seven-year-old who knew exactly who Mike Douglas' guest host was for the week. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and then enjoyed the even greater years in the early 70s when they re-ran Star Trek from 4 to 6 every afternoon. Uh, and I ate during those times, and it gave me relief. And, you know, and we discovered that this is how we turn out and learn how to function in this world. Um, uh, I want to talk as quickly as I can what drove me into this program. Uh, as a latchkey child, both my parents worked. My mom loved teaching. Uh, I'm also a teacher. Um, and uh, we adopted a, a girl when I was 10 years old, my sister Sarah. And uh, my mom took one year off, but then was so anxious to get back to work that, you know, after her first birthday, she went back to teaching. And uh, I became the person who had to take care of her every day. I had to get her up in the morning, change her, take her to the sitter. I was the one who had to be in home in time to pick her up and so forth. I grew very close to her. Uh, I would never like to suggest that I was like a parent because no one at 11 years old should be a parent to any child but we grew very close. 
And over the years, she had as much of a troubled life as I did. And we had a very common uh, bond with each other, as, as difficult as it was, because we were very close. Um, it was ten years ago this month uh, that my sister... Uh, let me have a drink real quick. Uh, sold her business in New York City and took a year off. And she came and spent two months with me and... Uh, as I said, I'm entering that period where I'm often reminded that I had two glorious months with my sister, and then she went on. Uh, in another year, I'm going to celebrate the 10th anniversary of something that I often share, just so you can know, you know, less than six degrees of separation. My beloved sister, nine years ago on November 4th, was making a cell phone call in her car and died from a head-on collision. So it can happen to people. It was one of the most horrific days of my life. Like people who talk about Kennedy, I know precisely where I was when I got that call, and I could not function. Um, now, as I mentioned, I've been in and out of program, and, and a story I like to share with that is the fact that, you know, uh, like with any addiction, the most important day in my recovery is tomorrow, when I'm in my disease. You know, uh, I love that movie. There's a, there's a movie came out years ago called Train Spotting, and while I don't remember a lot of the movie, it's about heroin addicts. And the part that I do remember in the movie is right after they shoot up, they talk about how easy it is for them to quit, and and that's the story of my life and compulsive overeating. You know, right now I could struggle. You know, if I was in my disease, but you put you know two dozen donuts, a half gallon of ice cream in me, and I can talk about abstinence all day long. You know. Uh, uh, and so uh, when my sister passed I began to think well uh, as a tribute to her I'll get abstinent I'll clean my life I'll turn it around and I said by God without question I'm going to do that tomorrow and I tried tomorrow and by noon I was back in the disease again and the next day I'm going to do it and then by then I was and then I decided, since it was November 4th, oh, the hell, New Year's Day will be the day that, you know, I live in tribute. New Year's Day came and I couldn't do it. And what began was a year of almost 300 days. Every day was going to be the day I made things right for my sister, and I could not make it right. Until eight years ago, uh, two days before that, on October uh, 10th, uh, I was supposed to travel to visit my mom. And uh, I got to the airport and I didn't have my driver's license and I couldn't go. Uh, and I was sulking in my disease and my neighbor next door had a film crew uh, shooting a show in their backyard. And all week long they had been eating lunch on my front yard and leaving trash. And when I set my garbage cans out to be picked up, some guy working on the crew put them back up on the yard so he could park, you know, and then my trash didn't get picked up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I was so horribly in my disease, and I'm a multiple uh, uh, addict, but food is my primary disease. I literally went crazy uh, on the 10th of October in 2011. I got so angry. I was calling the police. I was calling every film organization to, you know, try and get this crew run off because they weren't permitted, and et cetera, et cetera. And I proceeded to go out and yell at my neighbor in such an incoherent and crazy fashion that I even stopped myself. Because I realized, my God, I, you know, this is not right. And I looked at a person the first time in my life that I could see they were trying to make an executive decision of whether or not to call the police or whether or not to call a loony wagon, which I don't think they have anymore, so we would have probably had to call the police. Uh, and 
I was so afraid of my behavior. My father was a rageaholic. That's a different program. We'll talk about that another time. Uh, that I said, if you'll just leave me alone, I'll go back in my house. You won't see me anymore today. And I went back in my house, and as seriously as it happens in that great movie, Shawshank Redemption, I sat on my couch, and I realized I had a very important decision to make. That was whether to get started living, because I was surely on my path to dying. And I could not recover on my own. 300 days of trying, and I could not succeed. I was so desperate. Now, this shows my recovery that I immediately called my doctor because I figured there must be a prescription that will make me right. <laughs> I called him and I said, I've got to see a psychiatrist. I'm going crazy. And they said, well, absolutely, Eric. Uh, we have an appointment in three weeks. Uh, and I sat there and thought, how am I going to make it in three weeks? And Overeaters Anonymous, you know, when you work this program, is so magical. And I thought, you know, at that time I felt, like I said, that I had left the program the last time thinking I could not get honest with myself. And I realized that I was going to have to come back. And, you know, we have this story, you know, we create fantasies in our head. And I had this story, certainly there's the prodigal son, but I was the one that they would see and go, oh, listen, please don't come back. And I realized I had to come back. And... uh, there was a meeting that night, there was a hundred cameras meeting back in Reseda, back when it was still at the old Darby office. And out of desperation, I knew there was a man there who could probably help me. I went to that meeting and I sat behind a fellow who has a lot of years of absence in this program. Uh, I was uh, uh, unable to ask him that night, but at the meeting he pitched something that was so fascinating to me that it's always stuck in my mind. And he said, you know... For the person who's new to this program, for the person who's struggling in this program, if you're a day in this program next to a newcomer, you're a day ahead of that person. And at the very least, you can turn around and shake their hand. And that struck me. It's always stuck with me because I'm an introvert. The hardest thing for me to do right now is this very thing. I am terrified. And I always love to joke, if you watch me today after the meeting, the moment comes when I don't think I have anyone to talk with, I will be out the door before you realize it. You know, because I'm, I'm not comfortable with awkwardness. I have sought, you know, diseases. I have sought, you know, the food and, and, and other things in my life to escape the awkwardness. So anyways, um, I eventually went, uh, uh, at that time, uh, uh, October 12, 2011, uh, uh, I, uh, well, it wasn't on that day, but several days later, I went to the Sunday meeting in Studio City. And... I shared something so incoherent that two guys at that meeting walked up to me afterwards and said, would you do us a favor? Would you go to this place and sit at that restaurant? We're coming to save you. And they came and they taught me how to work this program and they saved my life. And my presence here today is a testament to those fellows. One of the things that I learned the most this last time I've come back in the program is that my thinking is what got me in my disease. And when I like to talk about the steps, I like to, to sort of interpret the first three steps in the following way, because this is what has been paramount to my recovery today. Uh, step one, admitted we were powerless over food, our lives had become unmanageable. And someone once pointed out to me, you know, there's no comma after powerless over food. It's a straight line. Powerless over food, our lives had become unmanageable. And, you know, in my disease, I've, I've even thought of this in, in, in recent past. You know, in our disease, we use some excuse to rationalize our addictive behavior. 
And you know, and that's the, the point there, is that, you know, I was finding every reason to compulsively overeat and escape my disease, only to feel guilty about it and say I was going to recover the next day until somebody cut me off on the freeway and then I was back in my disease. Uh, and to me, the real relevance of step one is realizing that it's my thinking. Any idea I have almost entirely in my life is found to be wrong. Okay? That's just an unfortunate fact. When I think about food and diet, I can talk diet for hours, but most anything I say, you should toss right out the window. Uh, step two, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. The, the, the best thing that these guys taught me at that time was that, you know, uh, a lot of people talk about the group as their higher power. I don't ever want to suggest that I've ever used the group as my higher power. Instead, I want to share something far more practical. And I have, hopefully I can get to a recent experience to share this. And that is the fact that if I can't make appropriate decisions about what I eat and how to respond in life, who is going to give me that right decision? Now, not one person in this group is going to have the right decision. I can call ten people and get sometimes ten crazy ideas. But, you know, if I call enough people, someone might rise to the top with a rational idea that I could take and use. And that, to me, is the most important thing I've learned in this program. It's never trust my first instinct of what to do. Call someone and say, hey, does this sound right to you? Get advice from other people. And step three, became willing to turn our, uh, our will and our lives over to the uh, uh, power of God as we understand them. To me, the most significant thing I made in step three on October 12th that day was I came to believe and accept that I was going to talk to people. I was going to get other ideas. I was going to cease making valuable and important decisions on my own. My recovery today is my willingness to do that every day. So uh, I've got to have another drink here. Um, so I do that. Uh, my abstinence has been worked out with my sponsor. And uh, again, with this particular group I'm with, you know, people talk about red light, green light, yellow light foods. We don't have yellow light foods where I come from. We just have green and red light foods. I've come to realize, you know, I am a... Uh, I love that, you know, we're in a program that when you say recreational sugar, we all know what it is. You know, you walk three blocks from here and say recreational sugar and people will think you're on crack or something. And, just want it. and here we know precisely what... I'm a sugar fiend, and uh, in my years of abstinence now, what's been fascinating to me is I remember uh, making a dish at home one time and finding that when I finished that, the dish, I always had the urge to go back for a second half. And, you know, I wondered about that. When I eat a salad, i got to tell you, you know, sometimes i got to force myself to eat a salad, okay? Or I might doctor it up, you know, uh, to make it edible. But the fact that I wanted to you know, go back to that food and I began to look at the can and sure enough on the can was sugar. You know, that I am such an addict of sugar that just the tiniest amount can set off my disease. And that's why I try to avoid sugar today at all costs. Because when I don't eat sugar, I don't have that urge. When I eat an abstinent meal today in recovery, I don't have the urge to have more. I, I have the meal, I'm done, and I get on with my life. And I share my life. Um, uh, I don't know how close I am to the end. You haven't given me five yet. Two more minutes to five. Two more minutes to five. Okay, I could come in under the gun. But uh, I can do, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'll do something. But uh, anyways, uh, I would like to share some practicalities uh, that have occurred in my life in recovery. 
A little over three years ago, um, I always wondered what it would be like if you were diagnosed with cancer. And sadly, about three years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. So uh, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) And uh, that's a really scary moment in your life. I can remember uh, I had this biopsy done. and the doctor called me the next night and just, you know, matter of factly, it was probably his 15th call that day. Uh, oh, yeah, Eric, uh, yeah, just call him to let me know you have cancer and I'd like you to come in the office tomorrow at 11. Uh, we'll talk about options. And then, you know, click, you know, I've got more calls to make. Anyway, you know, click, you know. And you just sit there, you know, you don't know what to do. I remember I went into his office the next day at 11 by myself because uh, uh, I just thought I had to go in there. And the first thing he goes, he says, did you bring somebody with you? And I said, why? He said, well, usually when people get a cancer diagnosis, you're not going to hear what I'm about to say. It's usually good to have someone there with you to actually hear what you know. And, and he talked to me for a while, and I don't remember a damn thing he said. Uh, but I did eventually get, a, get someone to come and help me. Another thing that I've learned in this program, the willingness to ask. Um, and hopefully I'll come back to that for a moment. Uh, nonetheless, you know, my connections in this program helped me not only get through that, but recover from the operation itself. And I was, for all accounts, cancer-free. Until uh, about three months ago when the test came back not right. This program, uh, there's a fellow in this program that, uh, I don't like to mention names, but has said another thing that has never, I've never forgotten. We were sitting into breakfast once and he was talking about, someone was talking about, you know, these damn sponsors that make us make three outreach calls a day. You know, what the hell is with that? You know, I'm an introvert. The last thing I want to do is call anybody. You know, we all like to receive phone calls. That's never a problem. But to make a phone call is a profound act for me. Okay, uh, not such that if I call you, you should think, oh, look, you're doing a profound act, you know, but but it's very hard. I just, it's very hard to overcome myself and my own desire to just remain with him. Uh, but this because I make outreach calls and because I have connections in this program, here's the miracle of what happened a few months ago. I was able to one time pick up the phone and call someone who I thought might know someone. And I said, hey, do you happen to know somebody who's been through radiation? I'm in radiation right now. Uh, and that's why I'm going. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, my recovery in this program connected me with someone whom I was able to call and share every fear I had about what the hell, uh, you know, it, it's like to be lit up by radiation. And uh, I was able to enter that process of my life, you know, with a sense of calm, but certainly abstinently. You know, that's what this program has taught me. And to just circle back to what that person said, he says, we make outreach calls so we can build our own social safety net. Because when I don't need you, actually, you know, it is a difficult time for me to call you. But by calling you, by making connections, when that moment comes that I need you, you're there. You know what I'm saying? If you've ever called someone you don't usually call when you're in a desperate spot, you know, it's even awkward for them to help you. Everyone in this program has always been willing to help on the other end of the line. But when you have a relationship of any sort with them, when you're really in the, you know, in the, in the pit of it, they're there to help you. And uh, that's my amazing recovery today, is that when I'm in trouble, I call people that I try to maintain some sort of contact with on a regular basis. So when I need them, they can help me. And i got to tell you, that is the single greatest uh, accomplishment of my recovery. And I'll just close with this fact, that, that uh, as I said, 
introvert, my favorite thing to do is sit back there and just be so quiet. I just want to be, you know, it, I work hard to defeat my own worst parts about me. Um, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to take a candle tomorrow at the Sunday meeting. I took a candle from my first year of abstinence to my second year of abstinence. On my third year of abstinence, I asked someone to give me a candle, and on the day they were supposed to give it to me, they had literally forgotten that they were going to give me a candle and did not bring it. That's okay. I don't, you know, I mean, as they say, that's not a resentment of any sort. But I used that to create my narrative of, well, then I don't need to ever take candles again. Okay? Because it's awkward. I, I, I don't like doing it. You know, it's very awkward. And, and it's against my better nature to do that. A uh, couple of weeks ago, I'm at a meeting talking with one of just the, the most beautiful people in program. And we were talking about abstinence and blah, blah, blah. and talking birthdays. And the conversation came up. When is your birthday? And I said, well, it's next week. And they said, well, who's giving you a candle? And I said, oh, you know, I don't do that candle thing. I'm just, it's too embarrassing and awkward. And they said, I'm giving you a candle. And in follow-up conversations with that person, and I'll close with this. You often hear, you know, people take candles, and you have every right to take a candle for being, you know, accomplishing something in this program. It's hard to get abstinent and stay abstinent. And I hope that if anything I've shared is how important it is to wake up every day and figure out what am I going to do for my own recovery. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, you need to take a candle for those newcomers so they can see that, you know, uh, you can get long abstinence. Uh, that's never resonated with me because, as I say, my abstinence is the beginning of the high holidays. Over the next three months, some of the most phenomenal people will be taking candles for phenomenal lengths of abstinence. It's powerful. You really need to come to the meetings for the next three months. You're going to see amazing things. But something that no one ever mentions that occurred to me this week in chatting with this person is that, you know, I just shared with you how hard it is for me to stand here and speak, how shy I am by nature. It's always funny, too, you know, that Johnny Carson was notoriously, painfully shy. I'm a school teacher. What the hell is a shy person doing as a school teacher? But in the classroom, it's a show, you know, it's a six-hour thing with musical numbers and everything else. And then, and then I go home and I isolate, you know, close the curtains and I isolate. But I realized that, you know, in my case, what's most important for me about taking a candle tomorrow is... I need to do that for me. It's hard for me to ask for help. And asking someone to give me a candle is as difficult as asking you to come and help me move. That's the weirdness. You know, it's, it's difficult. But just as we talk about taking a candle for those that have long abstinence, I realized that, you know, I need to take a candle and I need to ask someone to take a candle because that's so important to my recovery, to always remember that I can ask. The hardest thing to do in this program is to ask for help, ask for advice. And that's something that I have to do for my own recovery. And I'm so proud of all of you people and how you have helped me be here today. Thank you for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that opinions I shared with you today are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Um, okay, so questions? Yes. Sure. Can I talk a little bit about a how, how a higher power came into my life and how it works today? Um, 
it's you know I, I think that answer is a little complicated. I'm going to make it as simple as I can. Uh, uh, I I I have a presence. I feel the presence of God today. More importantly, uh, I feel that you know uh, if this makes sense. I've talked about, you know, for me, part of my recovery is to sort of relive and create some sort of, a, what I want to say, structure around my life. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I'm one of those people that I get up in the morning, I read a couple of pages, I make a prayer because it reminds me that, you know, uh, I have a commitment to this program and to my higher power and so forth. Uh, I feel the presence of God. Uh, I try to practice that. Uh, and, and try to be an example of that. I don't know if you know I could necessarily say I have a Christian God or something, but I do know that uh, uh, I work every day to remind myself of the power you know that, that a higher power has given me. I don't know. Did I even get close to that answer? All right. I hope so. Anyone else? Yes. What do I use in the moment when a resentment comes up? Um, and that might circle back to this answer. This is going to be somewhat complicated. Uh, I've been very fortunate. <clears throat> I discovered a Buddhist monk down in Temecula uh, almost 15 years ago that taught me really how to meditate and got me somewhat interested in, in Buddhism and so forth. Uh, I've often uh, mentioned that it's surprising how the 12 steps exactly line up with the Four Noble Truths. The fact that their suffering in life is all about the first three steps. When I was willing to accept the fact that, that there was suffering and so forth, I sought help. Uh, the second noble truth is there's always a cause to suffering. And steps four, five, and six actually directly address the causes of our compulsive overeating. The third noble truth is there is such a thing as unconditional happiness. Okay, There is a place that is that. And the recovery steps uh, uh, of 7, 8, and 9 bring us to that. If you've ever read the big book about the ninth step promises, one of the more interesting people that I ever had talk about the steps said that when you get to the ninth step, you should read those promises. And if you can't check off every one of them, you need to circle back and start over because you missed something. Uh, and there is a path to uh, unconditional happiness is the fourth noble truth and the recovery steps of 10 and 11 and 12 do that so when I have stress in my life the first thing I try to do is figure out the cause and that's what calling people in program helps me I can call my sponsor and say man I'm really you know someone just wronged me blah 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 and I can talk it over with them and help to discover the cause and once I can discover the cause, then I can begin to write about it, pray about it, and do all those things to get rid of it. Not always easy. Uh, I had an incident happen to me in my professional life last year that I'm still having you know, PTSD about. But when it comes up, I let my sponsor know. I just had another one of those attacks today. We address its cause. And then once I can sort of address the cause and get rid of it, the stress itself goes away. Does that make sense? No. Not always easy, but theoretically possible. Yes. Thank you. Um, could you talk about making amends? Yes. Um, uh, making amends uh, has been extremely important to me, and I don't know uh, uh, to what extent uh, this will provide an answer, but I know that one of the most important things that I do for my own recovery today is be accountable for my life. Uh, I actually worked for a boss that... that uh, uh, was harassing and humiliating me, but is one of these people that you know will never own their own actions. 
Uh, and that was part of the issue I had, that there was never a way I could confront this person and they would accept any responsibility for what they did. But what I try to do today is own my actions. And so, but I also know that this is another area where having a social safety net and health in this program happens. So typically when I do something to which I owe an amends, I don't necessarily turn right, always turn right around and say, oh, I want to make amends, you know, I talk about it with someone in program. That's another thing that I have learned. I'll give you a great example. Um, uh, so I've been through radiation, uh, and I'm still, I have a couple more weeks left. Uh, a week and a half ago at work, we were having a staff meeting, and I said something that was so personal and so embarrassing, I turned about 50 shades of red. Unfortunately, there's no book for that. But, but uh, it was embarrassing, and everyone knew it, and it was awkward, and I thought I had just destroyed myself amongst these people. Because it was just terribly personal and embarrassing. I don't know, what, you know, it came out of, you know, one of those things where it comes out of your mouth, don't know afterwards. I thought I was going to have to come to work the following Monday and make amends for what I said and make apologies all around, so forth and so on. Um, I talking with my sponsor and other people in program, they said, you know, just wait, don't, you know, just see what happens on Monday. And this is what will tear me up. Uh, only a couple of people know I'm going through that, but I'm literally convinced that a fellow I work with who was just an angel in my life, I'm pretty sure when I left the office Friday, he pulled everyone in and said, let's just give this guy a break. He's going through a lot. And I showed up at work Monday, and so help me God, it was as if nothing happened. Now, had I followed my instinct and run around and apologized to everyone, I would have just, you know, inflated what happened. Uh, and for all I know, nobody, it registered with nobody. You know, it just registered with me. And so that, to me, is very important. I've, of all the lessons I've learned, is don't even trust my instincts on amends. Talk to someone. See if it sounds right. And like I said, the best advice I said was, you know, let's just see what Monday brings. You know, talk to me after Monday. And we both got a good laugh when I told my sponsor, guess what? You were right. Nothing happened. And I think this fellow, you know, asked everyone just cut this guy some slack. And I mean, you know, so that's just one of the great miracles of this program is when you become a decent person, you know, uh, people do really amazing things for you. So anyways, this. Hi, thanks for sharing. Sure. Um, were there times, so you hit bottom and were willing, being an introvert, you were willing to pick up the phone and yeah. What, have you had this experience where you forget the bottom and you are not willing anymore, you know, to, to reach out and, and you go back into the introverted state? Does that ever happen and what do you do when that happens? Well, my natural state is introverted, so I wouldn't say it caused me to go back in my introverted state. But I think to your question, which is, are there, are, and, and to repeat your question, am I right to suggest, are you asking, do I feel that that sense or that desire to go back at this yeah. time? Yeah. Do I have moments like that? Yeah. And so that's extremely important because that's where I've learned ritual and outreach calls uh, set up responsibilities. Uh, yes, I have that more frequently than I would even care to admit. It does come up. And that's why, like I shared, I've learned, you know, of, of the things I've learned in program is just from my prior experiences. The moment I have that feeling, I need to ask, what am I doing in the program? That's right. Like right now, I'll give you a perfect example right now. I almost always have a meeting commitment. I'm currently in a six-month window where I miss the commitment at every meeting. I know that that's a little scary thing for me. 
I need to figure out what I'm going to do otherwise, you know. And so I try to get early to a meeting, set up. Uh, but so to me, those moments when I'm thinking, like, you know, whatever it is, when someone brings cake in and I'm thinking, you know, oh, that wouldn't be so bad, you know. That to me is a red flag for what the hell's going wrong with my program. And so I try to share that with my sponsor and we try to look around, you know. Uh, uh, and so that's kind of what I try to do. I use it as a red flag. Uh, yes. Um, what would you tell someone, um, either a sponsor or someone struggling, you know, person needs a program or doesn't really have a relationship with a higher power about um, what to do or how to work this program when you feel like it's unfair? Because I feel like when you're sharing, you talked about, I think, two huge amounts of years to sort of death and then with your right. diagnosis that are just really, really Right. So I hope. Uh, let me see if I can rephrase the question. Just do I have any advice for someone who might feel that life's too unfair to get abstinent? Is that kind of the sense? Because if you think about it, you look at step one. That's generally what I'm doing is finding something totally unfair that will excuse my behavior. Uh, and you know, and I'm not, those are two events where I got total passes from everyone. Oh God, you know, it's going through this, this and that. Uh, my best advice, and this is, uh, uh, and I don't know the moment where it happened, but uh, everyone's heard of Joe and Charlie, of course, the, the famous AA uh, duo that taught uh, how to work the steps. Uh, there are actually a couple of people in Overeaters Anonymous that do some pretty profound step work podcasts that I think most now are available for free. Uh, uh, Sherniak comes to mind. Uh, is it Wade Sherniak, I think it is, from Canada? Uh, I not only listened to his podcast, but saw him once at the OA convention. They, they brought him in. That would be my advice, because as I said, the real miracle to me was, and I don't know exactly when it happened, but certainly when I came in eight years ago, I was desperate enough to be open to it, was when I realized that, that thing that I shared. That the, to me, those first three steps are realizing that my instinct of what to do is questionable at almost all times of the day, except when I need to shave and I think I need to shave. That one I make on my own, okay? Because I can get, you know, objective data, and I should have to day and so immense to everybody. Uh, uh, but, but listening to some of those podcasts and listening to people who can share that sort of stuff <clears throat> was when I began to discover, as we will, what I shared today. That it's about realizing I need to question my own thoughts. I need to share those thoughts with another person. I need to be open to the feedback. And I need to be open to the possibility that there's a more rational choice that's not my own. And be able to get the help to see that. And, and that to me was a profound moment because it's not one that I had when I came in in 92. And I don't recall it being anything I had, you know, in all the other uh, recyclings of my time and program. <clears throat> but I gained that knowledge in the past eight years and it's been the knowledge that has kept me going. So I would say listen to those big book podcasts and just keep trying, waiting, ask people who's a good, you know, there's a lot of extended uh, podcasts out there now and a lot of people that have said just some phenomenal, you know, uh, and so I've been on that too, you know, there's always, I haven't done it of recent years, but in my early years, you know, I had friends, oh, did you hear, you know, Gail's podcast, you know, light a candle, you got to do that, you know, do, 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 do. Um, 
And those are the things too, because I think you have to find a way to work the program that becomes you know, workable and the magic for you. And my willingness to accept the fact that my idea is probably not right and to not necessarily act on it has been very helpful. Okay. Um, now, is that a five minute for the whole meeting? Is that right? No, for you. Five more minutes of question. Oh, okay. Okay. So another question? Yes. Um, when discord in your family or friends and you don't run into it but you don't need to be there God, I'm so glad you asked that question. And let me see if I can repeat it right. When dealing with family, friends, close people, when I'm in the midst of discord, what do I do? Uh, and that's an excellent question and, and a highlight of my recovery that I, I find just as phenomenal as anything else I've shared today. I have driven my disease most years through resentments against my own family. Okay, I just, you know, tons of writings, volumes of whatever I did, you know, in my step for inventory involved mostly resentments against my family. A crazy pivotal moment in my life. So I got abstinent on October 12th and then I flew to see my family at Thanksgiving. And my sponsor said one just almost flippant thing, you know, as I'm on my way. He says, Eric, here's an idea. Why don't you just go and be of service to your family? And oh my God. That not only turned around the whole visit, but has continued to be uh, a miracle in my life. That I went to my family that Thanksgiving, and instead of you know feeding my resentments and everything else, I kept asking myself, "What can I do to help? What can I do to be of service here?" And uh, that's the real thing to me today. Is whenever I feel that I'm in the midst of discord or something's trying to suck me into a really bad situation. I just try to think, how can I be of service and not be a part of this problem? <laughs> so, hope that helps. Yes. Thank you. <clears throat> what do you do on a daily basis for your program? Very good. So, what do I do on a daily basis for my program? Uh, as with most people, I send an email to my sponsor daily. Uh, my plan is usually to send it in the evening as a tenth step. Uh, there are times when I do it in the morning uh, for a variety of reasons. I will say this into the extension of a question asked earlier. It's the day I forget to send the email. That is a super red flag because that is signaling that I decided that my recovery was not worth writing that email. So that's, that's number one. I do my email. I pray to my higher power constantly. Whether or not I have a true, you know, God in the skies or not, I'm telling you, I'm talking to somebody all day long, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I stay in touch with people. I commit my food as part of my email. I say what I'm going to eat the next day. And uh, as, an, as an old fellow once said in program, uh, uh, in my mouth, in your ear. Try to make sure that what I'm engaging in, I share that. And, and I share it more than any other reason to this day after eight years because it's my sponsor that can go, what, what are, what's going on? You know, he'll catch stuff before I do. For example, years ago I decided I wanted to eat dates because I had a lot of minerals and stuff like this. So what did I do? I ordered like a 10-pound box of organic. Okay? Not a problem for me. For some reason, natural sugar is not an issue. But because I ordered like this 10-pound box, I started adding like two, you know, two dates to every meal. 
And, and you know, and at some point, my sponsor says, you know, what the, what the hell is up with these two days for every meal? And I said, well, you know, I ordered a 10-pound box, you know, and he says, you know, how about just going a few meals without them, you know? Uh, because, you know, he saw a pattern there and questioned it. Uh, over the years, I will say this, we have a catalog of meals that have made sense, and, you know, and, and, uh, and so we can sort of shorthand those. You know, but we talk about the ones. I have a family visit coming up uh, the second week of December where I'm going to be at Disney World for a week. I am currently mapping out meal options at every turn. But that's part of my recovery, too, is that I realize I need to plan for that so that I don't plan to fail, you know. Uh, and so I hope that helps. So writing every night in the morning, I do my ritual. I read pages. I say my prayers. I call my sponsor. Uh, and I try and stay in touch. Be accountable. Any other questions? Yes. How does your, which is going to be now physically, affect your work life? That's a great question, and I'll tell you, it's it's a nice one to close on with my recovery. Okay. Oh yeah, that's a very good point. So, uh, and actually, would you repeat it so I can repeat it? How does that? So, what I'm going through physically, how does that affect my work? Well, the cornerstones of radiation. Oh, you're going to love this one. Loss of appetite. Hey, that's great. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. Who knew that you know, <laughs> getting radiated would be the best diet pill? Um, uh, and then fatigue. Uh, thankfully, um, you know, I worked it out with my, my supervisor. I'm getting the time off. Uh, the best part of my recovery that I would share this, because I don't know if I shared it earlier, is my sponsor always reminds me there's data. When my doctor said, we found something, we'd like you to go through radiation, he said, you know, you could wait for this. We normally don't suggest you get radiated until the number hits this mark. But this would be precautionary to do it now. Talked with my sponsor, we made an executive decision that thought, you know, if I go ahead and do the radiation now and the number still comes back the same, we'll know that it's metastasized. Now that sets up a different set of circumstances, but at least we'll objectively obtain that information. And if it doesn't, then won't we be happy that at least as of now it hasn't metastasized? Well, I had a blood test earlier this week, and guess what? It's working. So, you know, uh, uh, I couldn't be more grateful. But it's that, again, that ability to recognize, and I share my fears. You know, I'm crying incoherently at times when I shouldn't because it's very scary. Um, but at the same time, my sponsors reminded me we need to focus on the data. Let's, you know, make a decision. And this is a case where, as I say, I've got a reasonably happy ending at this moment because the decision we made has given us the information we both wanted. So I hope that helps. Yeah. Stay in contact. Stay in contact.